This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Ant Timpson. Hello, Ant. Hello, Stuart. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. We've come to <laughs> you've got a movie that played at Fright Fest um, back in August 2019 that's coming out in the UK now called Come to Daddy, haven't you? I do, I do, I do. Yeah. It's me. Norm. I got your letter. I never thought I'd see you again. For how long has it been? A long time. A long time, yeah. I realize I know nothing about you. Boy, your mom really doesn't talk about me, does she? Not really. <laughs> mom, hey, it's Dad. He, he's he's not how I imagined him. He's not used to having people around. Why did you ask me to come here? I don't want to discuss it. I need to know why you sent that letter. I gotta take a crap. I know what's happening. You got no idea what's happening here. I could see. Ever been in a fight? I once have kicked the guy's ear off. I got this theory. Bad guys have eyes that look like razors. You have to kill him? I'm not a murderer. You just killed somebody five minutes ago. Who knows? Maybe we'll end up being best friends. Come here! Come to daddy! So before we do anything else, let's let's tell people when and how they can see it. Yeah, well, it's um it's out Signature Entertainment 
they pick the film up and they're going out through their Fright Fest, Fright Fest, Fright, Fright Fest uh, Presents label from Feb 20, really. Um, everywhere. So that's yeah. all, all the normal pay v, VODs and is it what, Blu-ray, DVD? Um, yeah, it's coming out. Um, no, that's coming out. Good look. I should know all these details, Stuart. Well, I was, I was I, relying um... on you, really, Ant, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. So people listening to this, I'll put in the show notes where and how and when you can see it. Um, and then now me and Ant will talk about making the film. Come to Daddy's your feature directorial debut. Um, it's not your first film. You know, your credits uh, for genre films that have... Uh, come across my desk, and uh, I've wrote lots of kind words, I think, about, I think, all of them. Um, oh. The only one I haven't reviewed, and I, I apologise recently, that I only just got round to watching Greasy Strangler, um, which is fantastic. Fabulous film. Though I did buy the Blu-ray, so I think, good review, buy the Blu-ray, you know. I think I've done my bit there, haven't I? <laughs> well, look. That's a um, there is a t there is a sort of direct connection to come to daddy. Um, not that I was just the, one of the producers. Uh, the co-writer of Greasy Strangler wrote um, come to daddy. To nope. Toby Harvard. No, no, my, so, my, that was my segue too. I'm glad you took it. <clears throat> so let's. So uh, one thing I want to do first is because um, the audience generally, I mean, audience is, is genre fans, but also filmmakers and people getting into film. And if they look at if they look at IMDb, they'll see that "Come to Daddy" is an idea by you, a story by Toby, and written by Toby. So, as a Bloody. as a kind of creative process, can you unpick in a simple way what that means? And actually, before I even ask that question, let's give people a brief synopsis as to what "Come to Daddy" is all about first. Yeah, "Come to Daddy" is a um, dark comedic thriller. Um, with some maybe a little bit of horror garnishing throughout. Um, and it's really a story of a entitled millennial uh, Beverly Hills brat who uh, is a wannabe music impresario who gets a letter out of the blue from his estranged father who he hasn't seen for 30 years to a, a remote cabin uh, on a very isolated part of the Oregon coast. And we begin the film with him arriving at said house uh, and being greeted by Stephen McHattie, who plays his father, um, who is not exactly what he thought was going to be a loving father and a beautiful reunion. It starts to um, go awry rather quickly. And uh, Norval, who is played by Elijah Wood, finds himself in deep water, as his father's murky past comes bubbling to the surface. Indeed, indeed. And we'll get into more detail about that. But first, so I'll return to my opening question now that I've done the due process. Um, IMDb tells us that it's your idea, Toby's story, and Toby wrote the screenplay. So in, yeah. in practical terms, what does that mean in terms of coming up with a film like Come to Daddy? <laughs> it's a, it was a, I mean, it's not a usual process. That's why there's so many weird... Credits and also mm. the the joy of lawyers being involved in legal language. Yeah. Um, but it, it kind of was. Like I had a I I had a rude awakening of watching Dad, my father, drop dead in front of me, and it was a very traumatic experience. And it was a real wake up call. Um, looking at mortality coming rushing in mm. full full scale. So I was like, 
uh, why am I producing everyone else's films and making their dreams come true? When I was that guy, I started off making making shorts and, and dreaming about making a feature and uh, decades ago, and I was in a sort of self-exiled cocoon of other work in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, it was really that experience um, that drove me forward to think I'm going to do something. And then I approached Toby because we'd been working on uh, Greasy and just keeping in touch uh, for that period. And saying, I said, look, I've got this skeleton structure of this thing I want to do. Do you want to have a look at it? This is what it is. Um, would you like to collaborate on a on making a film together and he was like hell yeah let's do it and then so it just became this process where he went away and did a draft and and from memory i think i pissed toby off because i was kind of like oh fuck that's way before even thinking like this is great i just instantly thought that is quite ambitious for like what because i knew how long these things take to get together and i was thinking like this is blown out more than what i wanted and so like how am I going to make this because I thought I was just thinking with a producer hat on like how to get this thing made it's super fast and so um so we we went back and forth a little bit for a while and then um and then it just was like starting to like just become super tight and just I was just like yeah this is actually something really special and then in my head I was like whoa okay this is not something I'm going to do in the backyard <laughs> and scramble resources and um, do it for super low fine just to get it done. This is, this is a really, this is a really great script. We've got to get, we've got to get some, um, get some quality people involved. And so uh, it ended up, um, yeah, just being fine tuned. It was being fine tuned literally as we were shooting. Um, there was stuff being written <laughs> so, so what you're saying? So, so you, so you're saying you were kind of going, I want to make something as contained and as location light as possible, and as production yeah. as cheap as possible. And then suddenly, Toby's yes. presenting you with these highfalutin ideas, <laughs> uh, and you're going, and you're, and you're thinking, no, actually, I want to do that now. Where, yeah. where first, you're like you say, you're going. That's going to cost a lot of money, or I'm going to have to get some talent. Yeah, I, to justify I, I, spending it. I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I had a, a completely like um, before wearing like being director focused, I was completely producer focused and I was approaching it from that point of view, which was probably it was the wrong way. How, how can I say how to, liberating to was that, that then to, to sort of start to begin yeah. to think as the director and not I mean, obviously directors still have to think practically, you know, resources are finite no, was, no matter what you're on. It was it was just glorious on on every level, and people always say like, how did how was the transition? How did you feel from like wearing different hats and things? But you know, you're still the same person in a way. Mm. It was just like yeah, it was just the um, it was the joy of collaboration. Like sometimes you feel as a producer, you're um, you're a step back a little bit because the onus is on everyone um, coagulating. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, using yeah. A blood term around the director, and um, and really trying to enrich that vision nonstop, and the producers just trying to keep all this plates spinning to keep it all moving forward. So you you miss out on the the what I feel is like a really the pure intensity of being in the moment. And so it was once I stopped wanting to try and control everything, which you can't. You really have to just focus. Um, and let that go because otherwise, you know, when I, I grew up in the, with the mindset of like, 
I wanted to do the special effects. I wanted to hold the, film the camera. I wanted to tell everyone what to do. You know, I was I was the kind of that guy. And mm. then you can't make you can't make a big you know a decent budget film and and have those instincts. You're just gonna you're just gonna get in the way of everything. So it's really being reliant on everyone else. It was it was just switching that big switch in your head to to understand what was going to so be all best the, for the So film. all the pep talks you've ever given to a director to say, look, we've got this, you don't have to sweat it, <laughs> you were having to invert that on yourself. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, it, there was non-stop internal monologues going throughout <laughs> this entire process right through. I mean, worse for me because early on I was living in, a, in my own terrorised, pressured bubble in New Zealand by myself, right? And this film ended up being a multi-country co-production, hmm. but it was really me being dropped dropped into the wilds of Canada with people I didn't really know. Um, and and that was exhilarating once I started started connecting. And obviously, I had a close relationship with the DOP and the production designer very early on. Um, but uh, it, it did, yeah, it was for a first-timer, it was, it was a real, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. The floor dropping out of you when you suddenly realise you're on you're on a plane going into foreign territory to make it <laughs> make your first picture what was, what, uh, without that sort of surrounding crew. You know, you grow up. A lot of people grow up making shorts and they have crew members that they all work with and everything, and they feel comfortable. And then they jump and they use a lot of them in their first feature. And there's those you've got that comfortability factor. Yeah. So it was I didn't have that. So you were saying you were you were got, you turned your back and then you hoped everyone held their hands together while you fell backwards. That's essentially. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the trust exercise trust. you entered into. The trust, yeah. I was going to say, in terms of your cinematographer then, you you as the director, what was, which obviously is a different, I get, uh, to, just to keep banging the same drum, but obviously being a different role to produce the talking to cinematographer, how, how, how did that conversation start for you in terms of what you were, or where did it even start then, in terms of did it arrive when you turned well, up? The, did you, the relationships. Was a run-up? Yeah, the relationship. Relationships totally different. It's pure, more financial in terms of the, the producer discussions with any of the HODs. Mm. So the director, it's really like who do you vibe with and who do you who do you align with and who. It's very hard. You have to do this all by Skype. Well, I had to do the whole thing by Skype. Mm. Um, I, you know, it seems I'm very sure common for people to speak to. Yeah, that you that you just um, you go through a big list of potential uh, people and then um, and I just. Um, Dan was a funny one. He was like, you know, when you talk to people on Skype and you don't make eye contact for the first bit and people are quite, and it's whether it's, um, it, it looks cagey uh, when, because they're not, they can't, I, I'm just quite an eyeball starer, which is probably um, even more freaky to people that I'll just look you in the eye straight away when I start talking to you. But <laughs> some people just, they don't do that. They don't do that initially. And I always think that's kind of shifty, but it's not. It's just like, they don't want to get into that fucking intense stare from would go you know just like let me warm up to that so but i but dan was really interesting because we we just um connected on so many things that uh we'd uh grown up um loving and he um he could speak that sort of secondhand language of genre film really efficiently and so i didn't have to go through this step-by-step process of of um over explanation to get to something that I thought was rather simple if you got it, if you understood what I was mm. initially talking about. So he um he's just he's just a super savvy guy in terms of um 
that type all all film, but especially genre film. I mean, I mean, it's safe um, to say that so, sort of come come to daddy is, is is almost like in three chapters, um, in terms of coming of age, haunting, pulpy noir thriller, was was kind of how yeah. I saw it. So, in terms of the conversation with your cinematographer, were you talking in terms of sort of three tones and feels to to get us through those, or was it I want the whole yeah, or was it I want the whole film <laughs> to have a tone and feel? What I had, yeah, I, I don't really like those films that shift um, palettes so strongly that it's a, it's a highly, you know, um, visible, like, um, handbrake, you know, like mm. you can see it on screen, like jarring, bang. It's, I, I'd rather it was kind of like it just it crept up and happened mm. and it didn't draw attention to itself. And so we did, but we did discuss the um, how the film changes um, in terms of like the framing and lenses, but also just uh, we were on sticks a lot at the start to set it up that kind of classical structure. And then when we wanted to go frenzied, we just wanted to go balls to the wall and go um, handheld and for those sort of moments of to make it super intense and, and visceral. So yeah, there was, there was so many discussions on, on all of it that, um, but it all went out the window the minute I was on day one of the set staring <laughs> At Stephen McCaddy saying, "What the fuck do you want me to do?" So it's kind of, um, you no matter how well prepped you are, it's kind of it's it ends up being gut instinct a lot of the time, um, you know, because we storyboarded everything. Yeah. But um, and but yeah, as with as with the case of it, it's just the reference. You just end up, you know, you end up after blocking and things what feels right on the moment, and that's half the time. It just throws, you know, you, those storyboards just don't work, unless you've got, <laughs> unless you've got the money to alter, completely alter things, um, because a lot of these store, storyboards were done before we even found the locations, you know. So it's kind of a little bit ridiculous because they're just so generic, to the they're not specific. But once I got there, I did draw, draw schematics of everything and sent them to Toby, the writer, and said, "Let's start using these to tweak uh, as much as possible." Okay, okay. Um, did, did that so, yeah. did that process have a dramatic impact on what the script was when you turned up as to what, what the film was you shot that went to get edited? I don't think it was a dr- dramatic thing. It was just like there's just little – the more you do those sort of small things, the more um, – I don't know if it's believable, but it's, it's, it's more heft to the um, – to make the world real to you mm. and and the writer. And so we're all kind of working within, like, this is their house. This is the character's house. This is like, you know, and then so that's why I got Toby to write the prehistory of all, all the characters and also a chronological timeline of, like, tell me what happened in that 30 years <laughs> before he turns up at the doorstep, which is um, really annoying exercise for Toby, but I really loved it. And I also, you know, we could share it with the actors if they wanted a bit more meat um, on their meat with their potatoes of how, um, what made this character like this, what was, you know, um, the background. So that has, I mean, it's that term world building is so overused, but it is kind of like um, the film takes a moment in time to me, like, it's got a, a point A, point B is that's it. That's the film. But we've also got this whole pre uh, enough for another movie in front of it and enough for, for a yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely, you know? it definitely, it definitely felt like we were we were part of a continuing tale of uh, of Norway. Yeah. Um, and uh, and just thinking of what you said there about you know looking at Steve McCassie and going, what do you want me to do? <laughs> 
he obviously he obviously understood what you wanted him to do because he's he is the uh, the embodiment of cantankerous and antagonistic in terms of his uh, yeah his his reception of his son. What I mean, in terms of what was on the page and in terms of what Stephen does, what 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 has he what has he done there with that character where you've gone, oh my god, yes, come on. Well, you know, what he did is he did lots of little sly stuff, um, which I thought was really beautiful. Like um, just the way that he had a bit of nuance about the drinking um, history of this character and that he's slightly sozzled throughout the whole thing. Whereas like in the script, it just says he has a drink here, he has a drink here, he has a drink or whatever. But Mm -hmm. it's not saying like he's not (laughs) he's not. uh, he's not feeling it in those other quiet moments where it doesn't say he's having a drink, but he's still, we can still see the post effects of maybe him having six wines before that scene. Got you. And so he, he was just very, he, you know, he knew exactly how to play it. And really for Stephen, what am I going to tell a guy who's been acting for 50 years? Like mm. he's worked with every major director in the world. And so it was more about um, what, it's more about like let's just talk about the tone of the scene and what we need to get to, and let's um because we just wanted to keep an eye on, on we want to be self a film that's self aware but we don't want to be nudge nudge wink wink aware to the audience so it was really about balancing that tone and so sometimes you know and st- and because it's such a fun character you can go really big with that as mm. well so um it was it was really just like trying to um keep like have a ceiling to it and a ceiling and a floor to like the 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 dynamic range of how far we can sort of push that um the comedic dark comedic aspects um because i i I hear people say you know it's funny but it's not really that laugh out loud funny it's like well yeah it's not a it's not supposed to be a knee slapper you know this is not something something about mary it's supposed to be like it's kind of like just like oh or off humor you know like what we used to like um i don't know i just it's kind of like the humor that we uh, it's interesting knowing it because what, what you talk about there is semantics isn't it i mean somebody says comedy and then there's a the, the, the misunderstanding that that's not a broad church because there's plenty of things there's, exactly there's there's you know, like you say there's laugh out loud and then there's there's bleakly awkward they're both funny yeah yeah but it's and it's not a negative that it doesn't reach those crescendos yeah. of of a Farrelly Brothers movie, you know, it's a very that's a this is a completely different beast. And, and you have a go at sometimes. Yeah, and if you do go there, I mean, sure, and it is subjective. Some people will think it's laugh out loud funny, maybe, but it's like there's um to me, I think if you if it hits those peaks, then sometimes you might actually knock it off, derail it for a little bit, and it might be hard to pull the audience back into where you need them to be hmm. if you're trying to sus- sustain tension. Like you kind of need those little sort of like um, you know um, absurd um, giggles, to, and then just get back into it. Then, um, then going for the big big knockout gags, you know, because then I feel um, I feel you got to do a lot of work to get back to get any tension in in this you know sequence. What one of the things that that that, that's, that stands out that's that's not usually a standout in um, certainly in in sort of indie indie horror stuff and. It sort of makes, made me think about uh, something Taylor Sheridan said when he was talking about Hella High Water, and in particular the uh, da- I don't know if you've seen the film, but the diner scene where the uh, the waitress says what you know has this whole kind of what you're not going to have with your steak, um, and your your 
your sort of day character, day actor characters that you've got in the story, they all have a brilliant role to play in what ends up being the biggest, the biggest story that that Norval's part of. They aren't, they aren't just the policeman or the policewoman, you know, that turn <laughs> up. The, you know, the whole raisin eye thing is, is a, is a piece of genius, really, in terms of just sort of lending, <laughs> lending the story a kind of. A good and, and I should I should emphasize it. I'm being very cagey in the way I'm talking because I don't want to be the one that spoils the story for right. people listening in. So, no, that's okay. You can say cops and things. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. not going to. I was things, thinking. I think because they yeah. they were they were really they, again thinking about what you were saying there about how the film has a life that that could have been another film before he arrives, another film after, and stuff. Equally, you could just go off with that policeman, and there's a film there. You know, you felt like <laughs> even in the brief moment, you've got enough of a character that that existed yeah. in that world. We did a, um, I mean that's, I mean that's that's you know beautiful writing by Toby, but it's mm. also we, can, you know, it's it's the script is the script. You can't you can't you can't turn back the clock and deliver that dialogue and try and play it straight. You know, it's mm. not gonna it's it's not gonna work. But I, I mean, I loved when I talked to Garfield who played played that character. I was like, um, I was like, this is a guy who has just who just watched a lot of retro re, uh, reruns of of cop shows old cop shows and and it's kind of like it's kind of like his version of role playing you know he's role playing what he thinks a cop how a serious cop should act so it's kind of like it's kind of like this um it's kind of like a new take on on the bumbling cop the southern the southern cop who's like like a slightly like Columbo but being hit on the head yeah. way too hard and so, yeah. So, I, but it was also moments of the, each time a character popped up, it felt like it, it brought a new breath of, of life to the to the film in a way, instead of just like filling in the dots of like, okay, here's the character that does this, or here's here's a paramedic who does this, or here's here's the detective who does this. You know, it's kind of like we we know those beats so well, so it's like why not have um, fun with them, and so they feel like the film suddenly crackles again. Um, and it isn't just like killing time before the next action sequence or something. So, and I just saw, and I grew up with like, um, you know, I just fell in love with a lot of seventies films where all the bit players were phenomenal character actors and they stole scenes constantly. And so, and they were given time on screen because we were in such a goddamn rush to get to the next big explosion or whatever. (laughs) There was a lot more time for these players to, um, to really have chew, chew a bit of scenery, but get in there and have some fun. There was just, yeah, it just seemed like there was more care for the, for the, for those sort of smaller secondary characters. Um, so we, we just didn't treat them any differently from the leads in a way that it's like if, if, if you could imagine that they had more time and more, more of a chunk of the narrative that you'd be super happy to see more. So it was kind of like also like leaving people wanting more of seeing them. Like mm. they was. Yeah, you know, like it's yeah, no, because I mean, I mean nice I mean, t- obviously, Taylor Sheridan himself was a was an actor, and he said, you know, he did a lot of, he did a lot of, you know, day 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 characters where he'd turn up on set for a day and do a character, and he said, he always said to himself, you know, if I if I'm getting something made, all those characters, I'm going to make sure they're as interesting for those people, so they've got a they've got a fun day to have, as opposed to just that'll be four dollars thirty five. Thank you. It's it's that as well, yeah. It's, but but ultimately, it's like if you do that, then the audience is going to the whole film's going to benefit, and the audience is going to enjoy it more anyway. So it's kind of like it's just a win win across the board. 
Mm. Now, obviously, Elijah Wood is is far from uh, a bit player in the film. It's his, he's the, he's the, he's the leading <laughs> man. Um, can you can you talk us through um, first and foremost, sort of cast casting Elijah in, in in your movie as the lead? Was that was that a long yeah drawn out process, or was that was that look of the draw? No. I mean, it's the was the fastest casting in the history of any film, I think. Um, so Toby and I were basically talking about Elijah right yeah. through the writing writing process i like, wouldn't it be great for elijah um just kind of like just knew he'd be able to inhabit that character beautifully and so uh, the minute was like we felt like it was super tight um the script i just fired it out to him and said and said what do you think to him and also his partner meta marie who's the producer one of the producers and um and he just came back and said yeah we want to do it uh, we love it, and so it was that quick, really. <laughs> it was really just reading the script and done. I mean, he was he was responding pretty quickly to after like sending me text during the reading of it as well. So uh, I knew that it was going down pretty solidly. That's two. That's two interviews I've done now in in recent in recent months where the, the director has has probably got directors listening in now, throwing laptops and cameras out the window at the uh, at the speed at which they cast. Uh, uh, April Scythe was talking about how he, he got uh, Lupita Nyong'o in uh, in Little Monsters, and it was a case of he he said he'd like her, and he sent it. And the day it arrived, she she came in the office and said, "I want to do a comedy. Have we got any?" And it's like, "There you go. One's just arrived." And then she was, yeah, within twenty four hours, she was in. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, she's great in that film too. And um. Yeah, no, it's, sometimes it's just, um, it is that luck plays a huge part of it in timing and you just don't know where. We, it, it takes a long time to, to land substantial actors. It's ridiculous mm. um, how, uh, yeah. And it's no one wants to talk about it because no one, you know, the actors that you end up with, everyone goes, yeah, that was who we wanted. That's, that's the dream cast that we mm. had from day one, which is a horseshit unless you're QT, you know, and it's, meticulously planned and these are the actors that are doing it no one else and um it's that you know there's only what there's a handful of directors who can pull make that happen um the rest is like scheduling you there's so many things that come into play that you can't control so but i guess, I'm just, but I guess the message you know, is there i guess the message is if you don't ask you don't get i mean in, in a very my, my you've got to try yeah you've got you and you, you know you use every every trick in the book to try and um to try and get it in front of the right person. And there's games to play. The whole thing is a one big game of how, how it works and um, who you know, the ways to bypass people, the ways to get, you know, it's like to, we got Smiley on board because I knew Andy Stark, uh, who's a great mate and also a producer of many good films like Free Fire and um, Greasy Strangler. And so he he knows Michael quite well. And so I just said, Andy, do you, do you think you could um, get this in front of Michael and um, and um, see how it goes? And so that was that was a personal connection as well to get that happening. Now, um, in terms of uh, Elijah's character then, um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to be done in that performance. And I think uh, anyone, when people get to see it who haven't listening in, it is, it is a brilliant sort of growth that uh, Norville goes through and that Elijah plays with a plum. I mean, mm. 
I'm just looking at my review where I wrote that um, he went from pampered millennial to alone in a haunted house to hardboiled hero. Um, that's true, and I think that you know that's a lot. That's a long way to go, but also um, you you show us, and he, and he performs brilliantly, um, how hard it is to be, or how uh, not how hard, yeah, how hard it is to be the person that gives the death blow. That isn't something that anyone can do naturally, um, mm. and I thought that 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 turn in a horror film, thriller film noir film, whichever one you want to call it, um, is is um, is always a fun one because obviously far too often we see people who just do killing and you're like, oh, right, it's obviously easy. And the idea that a character has to sort of step out of the horror of needing to fight or flight and then realising that fight is the only option and you're not a fighter. And, and still, yeah, and still, and still be humorous at the same time. Yeah. Like it's... Um, um, <laughs> by making all those the dialogue during all that that, that period of transition uh, actually land as well. I mean, it's a. I, I hope he's getting a lot of kudos for his performance because I think it's really super strong uh, and really smart performance. Um, he, we were, you know, I was so reliant on him grounding the whole film in a way. Um, this is how good he is. We took the worst person on earth, a rich white millennial <laughs> douchebag, mm. LA douchebag, and turn him into someone that they actually the audience has empathy with and actually gets behind them. Like that's tough. That's purely through the inherent likability of the actor of Elijah Wood, but also the way he performs that brings that character to life and makes him very human. Um, otherwise, he'd just be a caricature, mm. and it would just it would just it would it would fall flat, and it wouldn't work. And then the, then the ending that where we try to get all the feels kicking in wouldn't wouldn't have a shit show of landing. So um, yeah, I just have to. I mean, I just have to constantly throw out mucho love to the dude um, for for nailing it. And he was nervous about the whole thing because. Or nervous, especially the first time he read it, because he was a blubbering mess in the script originally. We'd cut that, cut back a lot of the uh, a lot of the crying. Um, Toby loves a good male uh, crying scene as much as the next guy. Mm. Um, but we, but but Elijah was like, let's just focus that one big. Um, there's one big sort of freak out where he has a bit of a gets a bit uh, weepy, and so um, honed it on that. And so he was just very aware of 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 how much he could push things in terms of that character and had it pretty well prepared, but he was, he was nervous about how he was holding the whole film together. Um, that he's in, in every frame pretty much. Um, yeah, yeah. It's all eyes on so him, it's a, isn't it? Yeah. It's a lot, a lot for an actor to take on. And I think the, the wonderful thing is that I hadn't thought about it too much, but one of the things, you know, not being, not being of the millennial generation, but obviously seeing a lot of them, um, being, being in London, um, and being in East London at that, um, is that it's quite an inward character. It's quite an inward. Um, there's quite there's quite an inward side to the personality. This idea of the tortured, the want for safe spaces, and all that kind of stuff, which is not explicit in the film at all, but certainly it's it's implicit mm. in the way he behaves. 
um, you know, how dare you be rude to me? How dare you be hurtful? Um, you know, I'm I'm being sent. Mm-hmm. I'm sensitive. I've got feelings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've seen a therapi- yeah. I've seen a therapist, and then <laughs> kind of shift later where where everything's externalized because you're screaming like a banshee because you need to save your own life, um, and you're having to do things that you know two two or three days earlier you wouldn't even give it a thought. And I thought that it didn't feel like that was always a leap. It felt like that was the growth of it. No. Yeah. And I, I and I kind of read also that early stuff where he's um, he's um, not being competitive but pushing back is that it's more about that, it, like the, the, the sadness of actually not, uh, of not connecting with, with your dad mm. and just this, 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 this need of like, um, a dream scenario that he'd already played out in his head, not sort of coming to fruition and getting kind of uppity hmm. about the fact that it, it, it wasn't all roses and and um, unicorns laid out for him. So it's yeah, it's that shattering of the thing. But we we also wanted to a lot of the when we we're talking about the type of film early on was like we really wanted to try and do a little nod to um, Dustin Hoffman and dogs, you know, straw dogs of just like that simmering thing behind this nebbish character that you kind of get little glimpses and so when he gets his back up and that big sort of confrontation scene that's starting to see like maybe there's a little bit more to this guy maybe he is a bit more like his dad than he realizes and so it's kind of the first step of that of that sort of uh, stripping him back of all that veneer that douchery veneer and um and that's kind of goes through like wardrobe changes as well and the whole physicality of the character starts to take on new dimensions as the film goes on. Now, with, with the, uh, you describe the experience as sort of, you know, being able to get, get your head down, do your work and trust that, you know, everyone's there, everyone's going to be there. He's, um, he's there to help you do it. So you don't have to have your hands on everything. What, what's, what would be, um, a, a fun, one of your fondest memories of, of, of the shoot that, that someone who's not, who wasn't on the set wouldn't, wouldn't be aware of watching the film. Oh man. I mean, to look honestly, to me, every minute was freaking joy mm. just to be there. I felt alive um, throughout the whole process, like mentally exhausted and physically exhausted, but I just felt like electrified. Um, so it's hard to pinpoint like an exact moment. I know that during the Elton John sequence, when we're when it's like a sort of to and fro between um, our, the, our two leads around a around a nice fireplace chat. Um, I kind of like started to realize, oh, this could be actually quite good. <laughs> that's a kind of was the first sort of uh, when it felt like I could see, uh, you know, I was we weren't even near the end. We hadn't even seen any bloody rushes or anything, really. It was just like, okay, this is like these are, these guys are on fire. It's working. The material's working really well. Um, and just yeah, I just suddenly felt like this is good. Now it's up for me to balls it all up from here on in because these guys are knocking it out of the park. Well, it's, that's a, it's, it's interesting you say that because I, I remember what, when I first watched the film because I've seen it I've seen it twice now and it's like it's the that, that scene you had me in the palm of your hand at that point because it was it's just yeah. a, it's just a beautiful it's just two brilliant characters sort of. Uh, I think they're both they're they're both doing really good work mm. and it's kind of like um, it's and it looks it's a beautiful looking scene too. Mm. It's like. Um, I just feel like uh, if I'd seen that in someone else's film, I'd be like, "This is a yeah, you know." I could easily distance myself and look at it as a, as like a, it's a great 
piece there, you know. Mm. Um, I wish, you know, you, you kind of wish that you had 10 of those every movie and you'd be very happy. Um, so, but yeah, that was kind of the first time. And then the other time was like, it was more of like a goof where I broke my ankle quite early on in the film. I was, when we were shooting on the rocks um, in front of that house, that beautiful location, I, I completely fell off and rolled rolled and snapped my ankle and then so oh, for 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 a while well i wasn't the only one elijah did it late, later in the film as well um but i i was i was directing from a chair with a megaphone classic <laughs> dw de griffith style uh, which everyone got everyone got over very quickly um but i thought was rather funny and um yeah that was um that was i mean there was we had there is a fun um there's some fun behind the scenes sort of stuff that went out through that uh, that whole shoot really. Um, it was just a it was a lovely location, great crew. A lot of Kiwis came up for it hmm. uh, eventually. So we had um, we had 12 Kiwis turn up, and they were they just come off Mortal Engine, some of them, and some of them were Avatar guys. So they're so they're really top of the top of the line techs, you know. So, hmm. um, but there was you know Canadians and Kiwis get on really well, and so it just felt like a you know the cliche a summer camp would. It was in summer, and we were like at a camp. We all were um, living nearby, and wandering through beautiful forests to get to that location. And it just, yeah, it was just, um, it was gorgeous. So when you say like name one moment, it was just, it was all just a, a bloody trip for me. I loved it. And 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 given obviously you were no stranger to a film set when you come to make it, but obviously you were a stranger to the role of director for a feature for the entire shoot of a feature film. What would you say yeah. were some of the new lessons learned you got from that point of view that you hadn't appreciated or you weren't needing to be aware of when you've been producing? If any lessons that I would have learned will be put into effect for the next film if I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they were more like um, uh, self-belief, just like believe in yourself a lot more, stop questioning it and stop getting caught up in um, your own headspace. And because um, that's not helping anyone, so it's kind of like the same as producing. Direct, clear lines of communication yeah. are super important, whether you're dealing with actors or crew or whatever. Um, but if you, a lot of the, you know, a lot of crew do gigs, they work for a living, right? So they just they go to one film to the next and next. It's not, it's your baby that you've been working on forever. To them, not that they don't give a shit. It's just that they don't have that connection to it as strong as you do. And they never will because they're doing hundreds of these things. You might end up making what three films or who, who knows, whatever. And so you have to, first of all, realize that, but also if you want them to connect and that you want them to jump your, on your fucking crazy train and go all out and lift the game a bit, then you have to be super enthusiastic about your vision and very clear about it. And mm. also, and throw love at people who do good work. Um, not that that's your job, but I just found it was a lot easier that when we all, that everyone feels like we're all working on the same, the same mission, you know. So it sounds very obvious, this stuff, but as you get you, you, you just get caught up in your own little world sometimes in that yeah. thing. Um, and I've been on films where the director is so quiet, you don't even know if they want a coffee. Like it's, they just don't say anything. And then, because they're internalizing everything, hmm. um, and they don't want to. And there's things like you don't want to show fear because they smell fear, 
it's like blood in the water <laughs> to actors or everyone. Yeah. No one wants to see that. So it's kind of like, um, but also, yeah, I just. Well, if it wasn't less someone then does 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 a does a film does a film production look different from a director's point of view then as it's as it's motoring along? Did it? Did it? Did it? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you, well, yeah, obviously, <laughs> but it's because it feels like every 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 inch of that frame you're trying to focus on um plus everything that's happening before and after mm. where a producers producers overseeing what's happening at that moment and set as everything is everything going smoothly is all departments happy blah blah blah, blah. And what's happening tomorrow do we have to do this and da, da, da. whereas you are just you're in that moment and you're getting hit with hundred questions from different areas about is this right? Is this right? Is this right? Do you want this? Do you want this? Want this? Want this? But the ultimately is like what is working for that fucking scene? What is working for the moment in the film at this time in the film? Um, and that is something that's kind of hard to do under the gun to to keep that focus. And um, that's what I found anyway. For his, for the first time, I just found the pressure of of everything. Um, that you sometimes get just a little bit overwhelmed, so it's it's learning to breathe and um, and enjoy it. And once and that took literally took a couple of days really to get into that zone. Um, but new new lessons lessons learned. I mean, though every day was was a lesson to me, literally. Like um, it was it was um, it was a, a massive learning curve. Um, just because what you think you know, it's it's just hard, it's hard to explain because it's. Um, because so much of it is fighting, fighting the pressure to do the best you can. You, you, for me anyway, I put, I put this project up on a pedestal, um, not just as a tribute to my dad, dead dad, but also mm. to like the first, the first feature after decades of of being that filmmaker who wanted to make one, and then it's all finally now. That was just that took a lot of. I had to get, I had to clear that shit out, out because otherwise I was just going to um, uh, implode under the self um, exerted pressure that I was putting on myself. As, as a tribute, as a, as a, as something that sort of is, has become a tribute to your dad, your, your, your dad's sudden passing was your trigger to think I'm going to direct, I need to direct a movie, but as a tribute to your dad, have you, how much? What have you imagined uh, he'd be saying? Now, you know, now, now the film sort of ah. lived and breathed. What would what would he think of the film? Do you think he'd love it? I mean, it was you know he we both shared a real um, gallows sense of humour. Mm -hmm. um, humour was always part of our family to get through any sort of traumatic experience. Um, so yeah, and it was just you know he he grew up with. Um, the same sort of character study films where all those secondary characters popped and um, the you know thing lots of good dialogue flourishes um, just kind of like I, I kept saying like it was a tribute to that type of cinema I grew up to but when I watched the film I know that it's not because you can't go back in time yeah. um, and we didn't shoot it on two perf which would have given it a real sort of grittiness um, to that as well but we didn't we ended up we, we couldn't do that because we were on an isolated island um so but i i'm hoping that some of those sort of inspirations of the material that i grew up with dad those those films um have seeped through 
in various ways into it without being too overt. Mm. Um, so I hope, I hope it that, but yeah, no, he would have, um, he would fucking love it. That's good to hear. Now I've got, I'm looking through my list of stuff that I wanted to, uh, to talk to you about. And the one thing I've missed off so far is the evil piece of dentistry disaster. That is Jethro character, the character that Michael Smiley plays, who yes. is, who is as brilliant and evil, not genius as he is a brilliantly comedic evil person in the, uh, in the story. Um, how how much was on the page, and how much is Michael Smiley just going? Give me the bat, and I'm running. <laughs> he um, well, Michael's um got a stand up background, you know, mm. so he's a very he's a very funny guy. Lots of uh, improv. Um, he he got it really fun. I kind of said like, throw there's a background was like um, a guy who um might have been obsessed with certain um characters in films like Alex from Clockwork Orange <laughs> um, and kind of like he, you know, there's a little bit of theatricality to him. Um, and so it was really like how far we could go with that, um, how broad he can go because he's pretty fun. And then Michael did some like crazy ad-libs that we ended up using in the film. He does a nice little, sings a little ditty. Um, just but that was kind of nearly in between takes that we just ended up using um, in the film. Uh, and then he turned up on set. When I first met Michael, he goes, what do you think of these? And he had false teeth from another project that he had been on. So those weren't and, on, um, that wasn't on the page, this idea of mangled teeth face kind of thing? No, 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 no. He, um, he, 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 he pulled those out of his pocket. We had um, – his look was very much defined from – would go like I had an image Photoshop image of him made yeah that I, that I did and it was like he ended up being exactly that guy it was kind of like if it looked like um he's described as Kenny G um <laughs> Kenny G meets P- Peter Wingard um <laughs> brilliant so that was kind of um yeah Wingard was very much a um a go to um <laughs> go to space for me um. So, so, but yeah, so he got it and, um, he, he, uh, the thing with Michael is just like, um, everyone loves him. So there's, he just brings a lot of happiness to the set with the guy. He's very, um, very likable, super friendly and, um, just a lot of energy. So yeah, no, it was um, it was a joy. We didn't have any rehearsal time on this film. Literally, people turned yeah, I mem- up. Yeah, I remember him saying um, he, he basically sort of flew in, arrived, and it was like, right, let's shoot a movie. He was, I think that was what he, kind of the point yeah, he was making at breakfast. Yeah, he did. He was he was like that. I saw him. Um, I think we had one dinner before um, we went into it, and then McHattie, I literally met on the day. We just had a staring contest when I first met him, and then. Um, and then Martin Donovan was in like turned up in makeup basically, and then went just straight into it. And he was he was someone who was invigorated by the whole experience. He said he'd never um, it was like going back 30, 30 years in time for him to work on that type of project because he's been playing suits and politicians, and and um, he really loved it, really loved the experience. And I think he's very good in the film too, like super fun. Um, and so, yeah, it was just uh, it'd be it'd be interesting to see if um, 
you know, how much it would have changed if we had heaps more rehearsal, whether it would be better or worse, who knows? I don't know. There just seemed to be something. Doesn't matter anymore. Uh, like, it's, uh, it's like, like alchemy. Cool. Well, great actors, um, they can turn it on pretty quick, you know. Now, uh, one thing I messaged you about before, a long time before we, we got to the podcast was about the choice of music that gets played, which is quite left field, mm. to say the least. Do you want to just shine a light on that for people listening? Um, well, there's a there's some Thai tracks. Yeah. There's a reason for them um, in there, but I also just love that aspect of them feeling. Uh, for me, they felt very fresh, and um, and not the kind of like the expected beats, musical beats that we kind of mm. we know had those sort of films. Um, so it was kind of refreshing that we had this, you know, traditional score um, by Cal Stevens. But it wasn't created traditionally. You know, I was like, my musical references were like um, Lalo Schifrin and David Shire and those sort of composers. And he um, he took the he took what I loved from those guys, but then he went off to using old valve radios and um, old, you know, old valve instruments and then um, and working with um, flautists to like do this kind of really cool spit takes really? <laughs> uh, on wood, wood, woodwind instruments. Yeah. Oh, and um, and just did a lot of interesting. He's just a very clever chap, actually, old Cal. And um, so there was like a. It's so when those tie tracks kick in, it just feels like it's. Um, it feels like hopefully very true to the character, um, who's who's putting them on. But yeah, no, I th- I I really like listening to the. There's an LP coming out via Mondo, actually a double. I mean, not a double one, um, extended one. So some of the tracks are on Spotify at the moment, but there's a full. All everything's coming out, I think, on the LP, um, which is really a really really um, good listen. Well, look, sir. Um, congratulations on the film "Come to Daddy." It was uh, fun to see it not once but twice for me, um, and I'm really glad we got this chance to have a chat about it. I'll put show note. I'll put details in the show notes about signature Fratfest present release and stuff. Um, it just gives yes, me to thanks, say. Sure. Well, I didn't want to put you under the pressure again. Um, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Stuart, it's been wonderful um, uh, chatting about Come to Daddy with you, and that we finally managed to 
lock it down. So, um, yeah, thank you, sir, for, for all of this. And thanks, um, thanks to everyone listening in. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.